This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. You know, we just learned a lot about uh, how the breakups impact us. Maybe it's some of those breakups that are keeping people from wanting to move forward and date anyway. I have a lot of clients that come and talk to me and they're like, oh, is my is my millennial or my young adult ever going to get married? And, you know, as somebody that looks over, you know, a desk every day from a young millennial, the answer to that is obviously no. No, they're not. It's never going to happen. At least this one's not. At least this one's not. Even if you make all the ice cream in the world, Ben, it still may not happen. But a lot of people are like, that's fine. That's fine. I don't want my kid married yet. You know? Interesting. Uh, we've had we've had some great guests on recently um, that, of course, you, you don't need to push your kid to get married. But there will be a point where you'll be thinking, seriously, are you ever going to get married? When is this going to happen? So we wanted today to – I wanted to spend a little bit of time in the coach's corner talking about marriage. Mowage. And it, when you think about it, it's not always – you know, it's it's not always that we we just are choosing not to get married. I mean, there are a lot of reasons why people aren't dating, aren't getting married. In fact, next hour we'll be we'll be talking to a, an expert um, who works and coaches with coaches singles and, and does everything she can to help them um, create a healthier and and I think happier uh, happier life. But there's there's certain things that have to be there. And, and if somebody wants to get married, there's four needs I teach that have to be in play. You, you, you got to have you got to want four things while you're dating to create, I think, some movement. The first one is you got to be you got to want to be in the game. Um, and we had uh, a great expert on Brian Willoughby here from Brigham Young University that talked about. Uh, a few uh, a week ago or so about the fact that so many people are missing the market. They're not even in the dating game. They're just not in it. They may have taken themselves out while they're finishing a program. You know, they're finishing their degree. Many people decide that they're not even going to date seriously until they are older, until they have finished school, for example. Or some will say, I'm not going to date seriously till I'm through my first year of law school. Or until I'm done with medical school or until I've, you know, until I finish this program or this certificate or I'm back from an internship. And the minute you set that that goal in your head that you're not going to do something until then, you may be removing yourself from the game. In the end, you've got to you've got to be available when people are available. And I think a lot of us uh, and especially and we're doing them for good reasons. There's a lot of uh, kids that go on LDS missions, and they remove themselves for two years to go on an LDS mission, and they're not in the dating game for two years. Now, many people would say, well, I know, but that's fine, but you'll come back and there's other people to date. Well, except um, a lot of times you date who you know, and you date your the people from your cohort, the people from your age group. And when you pull yourself out for an extended period of time from – an age group and a group of people that you know, you actually might be shrinking or the the size of the market around you might be shrinking as you're out of the game. 
and you just assume you can inject yourself back into that market and all of a sudden find your partner. But that may not always be the case. Like uh, like Brian Willoughby was teaching us, the ideal age for the happiest marriages, believe it or not, are ages 22 to 25. We've talked about other research on the show that said if you got married at 29 – You'll you'll be the ha- you'll have a good marriage, but the research shows what you'll have is the least likely marriage to divorce. That doesn't necessarily equate to the happiest marriage. Happiest marriages with the least likely chance of divorcing happen between twenty two and twenty five. And again, if you're planning on if you're twenty seven by the time you're deciding to get married, you may be you know out of the market, out of the game. So. There's something going on, obviously, because people are choosing to get married older. Another reason is simply because they they don't necessarily have a pro-marriage role model. For example, uh, their parents are sitting there saying, do not get married young. Don't get married young. Get, just wait. Wait. Get your degree. Once you've got your degree. So even the parents are pushing, wait to get the degree. But then parents, if you're pushing your children to wait, then you shouldn't be surprised when they do. You're listening to the best of the Matt Townsend Show. You can't really have it both ways. Yeah, but you didn't know this guy, Matt. This guy was such a loser. You did not know this guy. So if you want to promote marriage in your life with your kids and your young adults, then you've got to be a pro-marriage parent. That might also mean you've got to like being married yourself. If your kids see that you hate marriage, that might be another reason why these millennials are saying, I don't know if I want to go there. My mom hates it. My dad can't stand it. If you don't make marriage look appealing, then why would we expect people to do it? So one of the benefits of being a millennial today is you, you've you seen how your parents have handled their lives. So that may be one reason you're choosing not to be in the game is you never had a pro-marriage role model. You never had somebody that saw the benefit or the need or the love of it. Another reason um, that uh, we've talked about recently on the show, too, is that you got to want it. And there's a big uh, issue with attachment that they're finding out that your ability to attach to another human being is probably one of the most important skills or tools you've got in your life. Do you feel like, just as you're a listener today, do you feel like you have a really strong ability to connect in and attach in a healthy way to another person? Do you feel like you're healthy about it, or do you feel like you're more desperate for them, needy for them? According to the research, uh, some of the latest research that uh, Dr. Vanita Mehta shared with us a while ago is you've got um, about... uh, since in the last 20 years, since about 1988, that the that people have become more unhealthily um, attached. So 60% of the people today have an unhealthy ability to attach. They don't attach well, which was weird because 20 years ago, it was about 50% had an attachment issue. Only 50% had an attachment issue. Today, 60% have an attachment issue, which means only 40% of the people in your dating pool have the ability to, in, to attach in a healthy way. That might be another reason why people are prolonging marriage. So, And we talked about it, the fact if you, if you don't have a strong attachment, then some tendencies you'll have. One thing is to just simply be you know, um, basically not 
into wanting to get married. You actually are not pro-marriage. You, you, you don't want to marry, A, but you actually don't see a need for it. So you become kind of an anti-marriage evangelist. And if you start becoming somebody that doesn't need marriage, then that will pretty much ensure you're not going to find somebody that's going to want you. Another thing we do is we get preoccupied. If I am not into healthy attachment, then I might get more preoccupied with my life, my business, my work, my degrees. And I think so some of these kids that are just too busy and they're prolonging their their idea of getting married, they just – it's not that they don't see a need for it. They want to get married. It's just going to happen after they're done with school. So imagine that you're dating somebody like that. That's a hard date. Somebody that doesn't is not anxiously wanting to be with you. Um, and so we'll just wait three more years. Then we cohabitate, and that creates other issues uh, as far as marriage stability. Uh, couples that do cohabitate before aren't happier. They are less likely to get married. They're less likely to to actually make the relationship work. So um, interesting, just interesting stats from the researchers. Um, the other thing that people tend to do if they're not necessarily uh, able to attach in a healthy way, they tend to fear relationships. And when they fear them, they're not so excited to get into them. And then the last simple rule is some people uh, just don't know how to date. They don't know how to do it. And they don't have the skills. They don't have the ability. They've never taken a class. They've never read a book. And they've never been good at it by just dating on their own. And it creates problems. So you got to want it. You got to be in the game. You got to have role models that are pro marriage, and you got to know how to do it. And if you don't have those things, then it's going to, you're probably going to slow down your path. So, parents, you know, don't just sit there and complain. Sit down and talk to your kids. Is it one of those issues? Are they just not in the game? They're not around people to date. Where do you find a date today if you don't go to a bar? If you're somebody that's not going to go to a bar and drink, where do you find the date? At work? Well, I'm working. <laughs> and they dissuade us from dating at work. Okay? So you can't find them necessarily at work. And if you're done with school or if you're not going to school, it's hard to find a date. And are you a great role model, parents? Have you taught your child, you know, the importance of relationships, the importance of marriage, that they're not disposable, that we don't just throw them away? Anyway, just a little uh, coach's corner for you. Instead of worrying about your child eventually getting married, why don't you just talk to them? Find out what's going on in their life. And uh, be their coach. Be their guide on the side. Stick with us. This is the Matt Townsend Show. We'll be right back. Won't get me into med school. That might be uh, something you've heard from one of your kids uh, trying to either get into med school or get into the university. Uh, all the stress, the 
the anxiety they're feeling about their studies. Today, social media is creating a world where students might have an unrealistic educational and professional uh, ideal or standard, replacing good, being a good person or a good student, with the need to be perfect or perfectionism. Here to speak with us today about perfectionism is Thomas Curran, an assistant professor at the University of Bath in the United Kingdom. He's been uh, studying extensively this topic and uh, has uh, was um, has some great information for us, I think, about how we can handle or, or coach or lead our children um, to, uh, to manage this perfectionism or this need to be perfect. Thomas, thank you so much for being with us today. Uh, my pleasure. Talk to us about um, what you are seeing um, with our with college students uh, around the world. Do, perfectionism is on the rise, I hear. That's right. We've recently done some work uh, looking at how perfectionism has changed over time among uh, well, separate cohorts of college students um, from 1989 to 2016. And you're absolutely right. The analysis that we've recently done has suggested that uh, levels of perfectionism among more recent generations are far higher than they were uh, among previous generations. And um, we think that that's quite an interesting finding. We think that chimes, well, seems to have chimed anyway with a lot of uh, people who have written and reported on the work. And uh, and uh, yeah, it's, it's an interesting finding that I think we need to pay attention to. Mm. What is, just define for us how how you define perfectionism so we're all on the same page there. So perfectionism is uh, broadly defined as an irrational desire for flawlessness uh, in combination with harshly self-critical tendencies when we don't uh, achieve uh, our high achievement standards. And there are three main dimensions or core dimensions of perfectionism. The first is what we most, uh, I guess most of us would uh, think about when we think about perfectionism is this idea of high or excessively high um, personal standards and, and the kind of uh, quintessential overstriver, somebody who works and uh, relentlessly uh, hard. And that's called self-oriented perfectionism because it comes from within. But there's another dimension of perfectionism, which is a social dimension of perfectionism, which is the perception that the uh, social environment and the immediate others in our social environment are, are highly expectant of us, or excessively highly expectant of us. That's to say that they expect us to perform perfectly. Mm. That's called socially prescribed perfectionism. And the final dimension is the type of perfectionism that's directed outwards onto others. So that's this idea that uh, we expect perfection from others and are punitive when they don't perform. Uh, and that's called other-oriented perfectionism. And uh, those three dimensions are collectively what we understand as this perfectionism uh, that, personality. And, and I guess it, it, it probably doesn't matter if you're putting it on yourself, if others are putting it on you, or if the environment expects it. Do they all have the same results of, of increased stress, increased anxiety? Well, what's really interesting from our analysis is that it's that social dimension of perfectionism, so the perception that others are highly expectant of us, that has undertaken the biggest rise uh, in recent years, actually twice twice the rate of the other two, and that has obviously implications for uh, social pressures uh, that we might come on to. Uh, 
why that's most important or why that's uh, particularly uh, interesting is because socially prescribed perfectionism of those three dimensions that I mentioned uh, displays the largest relationship or correlation uh, with serious mental illness. So those people who have high levels of self or socially prescribed perfectionism, sorry, uh, tend to display uh, or tend to experience, I should say, uh, high levels of anxiety, depression, um, and even in the worst cases, there's a lot of research to suggest that it's associated with suicidal thoughts. So hmm. uh, it's a highly negative trait. Yeah, I bet, too, because it's it's your world. that You feel like the world's closing in on you, it seems like. The world's demanding it of you. Yeah, for sure, and, and we've 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 kind of speculated on some of the pressures, but but you've already kind of mentioned a few of them in your in your introduction there. You know, uh, higher educational expectations on younger people are certainly, we think, feeding into a perception that the social environment is highly demanding. Social media too, uh, where people young people are bombarded with unrealistic uh, ideals of the perfectible self, again, can breed a sense that. Uh, the social environment expects us to be perfect, and of course we can't really escape it. So uh, when we tie our self-worth to high achievement and and and, and pre- presenting perfect perfect image and perfect uh, achievement scores to others, then of course when we don't meet those expectations, that can be highly damaging for our uh, for our psychological well-being. So are you? So you're seeing the numbers go up. You're seeing a lot of, more of it kind of being in the social uh, environment area um, that drives it. Some of that might be social media. Is it how, how does it manifest? So as, as students are in college and they, they get there and they feel this perfectionism kind of creeping in on them, what do you see that they do? How do they go about um, you know, demonstrating and acting out on their perfectionism? So we think perfectionism is largely a coping mechanism. Uh, to the excessive expectations that young people are placing on themselves and they feel that are being placed on them. Uh, You know, when uh, performance and achievement is so important in in contemporary culture, not only to reach the highest, uh, let's say, get the best GPA scores in school, but also to reach the best colleges and therefore the best access to the best jobs, Achievement is so, so important in this context. And so we, so young people tend to define themselves in very strict and narrow terms of a perfect GPA or a or access or getting into the best uh, college. And, of course, what that does is, it, it, in order to cope with, with those demands, you tend to internalize perfectionistic tendencies, high, excessively high standards, excessively high goals, because, of course, if we do that, we're setting ourselves or putting ourselves in the best position to succeed in this culture, which has excessively high demands. So things like uh, overstriving, um, high levels of persistence, and uh, to the point where diminishing returns has to say that we go we go to the very limit of our capacity and then further so not so it becomes damaging to our um you know uh, it becomes very exhausting cognitively and, and physically uh, so we tend to see um, those sorts of sorts of behaviors creep into uh, but also lots of worry and doubt about our actions and concern over uh, how we're perceived and, and how we perform which of course are also very damaging for our uh, not only our, our sense of self-esteem but also our um our levels of mental, our mental health overall, depression, mm. anxiety, etc. Um, so we think it's certainly a way in which young people are coping with these excessive demands. Uh, and education is a big one, but um, it's not the only one. Of course, there are also excessive 
uh, image demands that are placed on young people in social media, and, and the same things apply. Mm. Uh, again, we're speaking with uh, um, a Cur- Thomas Curran, who is a, a, an assistant professor in the Department of Health at the University of Bath in the United Kingdom, and his research focuses on perfectionism in young people. We're talking about the fact that more and more college students seem to be majoring in perfectionism. Perfectionism is on the rise, and uh, much of it, it seems like, is is coming from you know increased expectations on educational achievement, also um, uh, some social media pressures as well. What, Thomas, as a father of two uh, college-age kids, three college-age kids, what, what are things we could be doing as parents to, um, to make sure that, that we set our kids up to, to maybe not fall into this perfectionism trap? I think there's a few things that um, that we can we can do. I, I think the first and the most important uh, lesson is that um, self-compassion is very very important. Uh, we 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 tend to put everything on the line, but and, and it's understandable that parents respond to high pressures uh, by involvement and over involvement in kids' uh, educational activities, but but. Over-involvement and high levels of uh, surveillance, which we also see increasing among parenting practices, uh, can 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 be counterproductive because they they tacitly teach children that uh, or reinforce this idea that achievement is really really important and that it's the only criteria of success or worth. And I think we need to be very vigilant of that and to emphasize that hard work, persistence, diligence, flexibility, being conscientious, you know, these are all great goals and great aspirations, but uh, perfection and flawlessness is not. Mm. And uh, so making sure that uh, goals are reasonable, uh, that when your young people don't do as well as they want to do, that, that we make sure that they don't self-castigate, that they see the opportunity for learning in that in that space uh, and recalibrate goals downwards so that, so that hopefully the next time they achieve, in which case we can start to build those aspirations upwards in more manageable chunks and so there's not, there's not, there's not a consistent, uh, they're not consistently faced with failure. So I think self, being self-compassionate and, and making sure that we see the opportunities for learning in failure is really, really important for parents to teach the kids um, because, it, because it doesn't reinforce this social ideal that achievement is the be-all and end-all. And it seems like a lot of parents, even uh, like in the United States, we have access to our kids' grades online, and now we're checking them daily. We're checking if they're turning their assignments in. We're so over-managing the details that it probably, you're saying, gives the illusion to the child that this is so critical, that we have to be perfect at it. For sure. I, and, and and I think the the... The metricalization, if that's the word, of education has been really damaging for young people because it's it's it gives them instant feedback as to where they sit in the social hierarchy, both in the in the microcosm of their own schools, but not only that, of course, uh, where they rank nationally amongst others, and and I think that's counterproductive because uh, uh, after all, learning and education is really about teaching young people how to interact effectively with the world, uh, how to learn to learn, 
and contribute meaningfully to society, whether that be through um, if they want to go and be an engineer or they want to go uh, be a scientist or whatever it might be. Uh, It's really about that process that that allows them to interact with the world effectively. And we've kind of changed it into uh, something that's all outcome-focused and focused on the metric, focused on the grade, and forgetting that there's a bigger picture to the learning process. And I think it's really important for uh, at society for us to recognize that uh, and for parents in particular to sort of resist that urge uh, to constantly monitor and constantly uh, be over involved because that that reinforces uh, this message that kids should only really value themselves based on 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 that metric, and and there's lots of research to show that you know when when kids do see learning uh, as an opportunity to develop and grow, they actually perform better hmm. because they've got less stress, they've got less anxiety, they feel freer to explore and be curious, and as a consequence, uh, you tend to see that they perform better in exams and uh, coursework and, and all the rest of it. So actually, it, it can be counterproductive uh, to be over-involved. Is, give us a little take, too, on the social media side of this. I mean, if I could, if I could talk my college-aged kid into being less involved in social media, do you sense that would help this? Social media is an interesting one because... It can be very positive, uh, particularly uh, for people with or shared interest. It it brings them together around common goals and can be very helpful uh, to build communities and and, and relatedness among among people. So uh, I think we have to be careful to resist the temptation to sort of jump on social media as as, uh, universally uh, negative. But but what I would say is that social media can be problematic for those individuals that use it with underlying vulnerabilities. And unfortunately, one of the underlying vulnerabilities is perfectionism, because those uh, who, the perfectionists tend to use social media more, uh, purely because it's a way of reinforcing a sense of self-esteem that's based on comparing favorably with others. So they feel that it's a platform that they can use to receive interper- that's others' approval and interpersonal validation through things like likes and um, uh, and uh, 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 friends and all the rest of it. Again, these are metrics, by the way, you know, yeah. how many likes, how many friends. Um, but th- it's a way for them to feel like they can... gather a sense of self-esteem so they use it to bolster unmet needs and an unmet sense of self-esteem and that's highly damaging because within that social media space they're constantly bombarded as I say with unrealistic ideals other people's creations of a perfect life and lifestyle and of course they take those creations at face value and make negative judgments about their own life and their own uh, image and of course over time and if we're constantly using social media to try to bolster our sense of self-worth is highly damaging because ultimately we're always going to end up feeling worse than other people, which impacts on our self-esteem, which impacts on our mental health. So social media is not universally negative, but of course, if you see in your in your children certain vulnerabilities and perfectionistic tendencies, I would definitely encourage that you try to uh, limit uh, the time uh, on on the platforms because they can be damaging for those individuals. Yes, great, great insight. Uh, Thomas Curran, thank you so much for your work, your insights. Again, Thomas is an assistant professor in the Department for Health at the University of Bath in the United Kingdom and uh, given us some great lessons on perfectionism and, boy, all the metrics we're creating when you think about it. It's 
it has consequences when we measure our children by so many metrics every day. Uh, the likes on their social media, the grades, how many trophies, how many yards they earned in running for the ball in football. Lots of stuff that we're building our children's identity around, and it is uh, driving up perfectionism. We'll continue the discussion to a little Coach's Corner straight ahead. This is the Matt Townsend Show, helping you be the good in the world. I'm ready to go in, Coach. Just give me a chance. Because life doesn't come with a handbook, you need a coach. Here's Dr. Matt and his coaching corner. Play ball! Welcome back, friends. Have you ever been uh, plagued by this uh, perfectionism? I, um, I see it in my life in a very specific way when I write things. Um, so I have I, – I literally right now have white papers that I've created on to, – to write five books. And as I go through life, I keep picking up more information and then throwing them into these white papers. And so I'm ready to write five books. I just, I just don't want to write them yet. Because part of what I found is writing my last book, I get so uh, kind of perfectionistic in the outcome of what needs to be in the book that I, 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 I become immobile. I won't progress. I don't move forward. And I see that – notice it's just this simple little concept that's in my head that makes me think I've got to – it's got to be perfect. It's got to be perfect. And the funny thing is in in all my perfection on that one idea, I then turn it over to editors and then they just tear it to pieces. They just obviously didn't see how perfect it was. So if you notice, perfectionism is in the eye of the beholder, I guess, unless unless, of course, you know, um, you bowl the perfect game in bowling. There's there's something that you can do perfectly, right? 300. You can you can hit that number. The hard part about perfectionism, though, is that it's not even just what it does to me. It's also what it does to everyone around me. Then I start to demand perfection. And now that we have the kids' grades that we can look at every day, every week, I suggest to the, my clients that I work with, um, they're, they're checking it daily. I suggest they don't do it daily. I would check it maybe monthly, twice a month. Let's get the numbers twice a month. Let's not focus on it as a daily endeavor, uh, maybe at the very most every week, but really spread out the, the way and the time we look at it. If you look at it at all, wouldn't it make more sense to just start to find out from our child what they're actually learning, what, how they're growing? The the um, some here, let me give you a little test to see if you are a perfectionist. I'll ask you some questions. You run through your head, and it'll kind of help you see if you if you're if you're running or tending or trending toward perfectionism. Do you feel like your accomplishments are never good enough? You value people based on their achievements. You know, is an MD more valuable than a PhD? But a PhD is more valuable than a JD. Is a JD better than no degree? How about a master's degree? Do do they have to have, uh, you know, do they have to be an Olympic athlete or do you always lead with their achievement? Do you believe that your best just doesn't cut it? Do you take mistakes personally and then you hesitate to try again? Are you vulnerable to rejection? Do you uh, set impossible to reach goals for yourself? Are you hard on others and on yourself? Do you expect perfection from others? Do you develop almost an obsession with it? 
Uh, do you fear that uh, failure in the relationship, um, you know, is is a sign that you know if you have to go get marriage help or marriage counseling, is it a sign that you're not you're not good enough? Um, you actually end up not pursuing relationships because you fear the outcome might be that you might they may not work. Uh, do you tend to be critical of your partner? So if so, you may have. Uh, a bit of the perfectionism in you. Um, Webster defines perfectionism as a disposition which regards anything short of perfect as unacceptable. And the torment for perfectionists is that they never find anything perfect because it doesn't exist. It just can't happen. It doesn't happen. And so you end up putting yourself in this ever never-ending spiral where your goal is something that you can't attain, and then you become obsessed with seeing how you don't ever get there, and it makes you spiral and spiral and spiral. So I want you to be thinking about you. How has perfectionism been impacting your relationship? Can you actually build a healthy relationship uh, if you are a perfectionist, and how can we start to um, how can we start to get rid of it? Like our good doctor Curran was telling us, if if you sense that you've got uh, perfectionism in you, if you sense that you it's already kind of part of your identity, your psyche, you might be one of the people that ought to start to minimize your use of social media, because social media does tend to play on the perfectionist. It's, you know, you might use it in an inappropriate way that would actually, you use it to get more likes, you use it to get more external validation, you use it to go be more comparative to everyone else that's on your your chain. And so um, you might want to back off of that. We also want to maybe, if you see it in our children, start to minimize the metrics and make life less about the measurables and start focusing on what I call the intangibles. The, the tangibles are those things that we can see. The intangibles are the things that are harder to see. Um, You know, a grade on a report card is a tangible that I can see, but the hard work and discipline that was put into that grade are the intangibles we can't see. And it might be more valuable to start shining our light on those intangibles. The hard work. Talk to your kids about work ethic and, and their hard work. Talk to them about their discipline. Talk to them about how resilient they are how the adaptable they are, how they could actually, uh, when that teacher threw that curveball and had everybody, you know, not do this assignment, but do this assignment, talk about how well they handled those intangibles that got that assignment done. Um, there's so much more power in helping the kids gather the tools of the intangible than than just solely the tools of the tangible, especially when you live in a world that um, would rather hold up the tangibles as the only way of of living, the only way of making it work, the only way of making life valuable and good. We also, I think all of us need to be more careful with how we um, and what we hold up and what we esteem. You know, we probably ought not make as big of a deal about something that um, that seems, you know, like trivial in the end. Uh, of a, a, a vast or a basketball game, a football touchdown, these are wonderful things. But again, they're they're things that in the in the end won't matter on the deathbed. And yet we spend so much time looking for the perfect team, the perfect game, the perfect outfit, 
the perfect partner. I think it's impacting a lot of our dating today. It's impacting a lot of how our our youth uh, see marriage. I know a lot of people that don't want to go near marriage simply because it's not perfect. And yet, sadly, it's in that imperfection, honestly, that we grow, that we develop, that we become who we really are. We need the cracks in each of us in order to see the light, the goodness. I've noticed with my own clients, we need the breaks. They need the, they need the imperfections that make life hard so that they eventually have to look to God to live, right? They have to look to their God to figure out how to get through these difficult times with these difficult uh, imperfections. So praise the imperfection. Find the good in what you think is the bad and see if we can't make life a little bit more valuable in the chaos or in the breaks or in the imperfections. I don't know. It's a hard, hard uh, thing that I think all of us have to battle with at some point. And we now know our, our youth are really suffering from it. So let's, let's watch out for that. Little, just a little advice for you. Not, it's not perfect. Relax. It's just an idea. But uh, don't make arguments either that perfection, perfectionism is necessary. That's an illusion. Your God will eventually make you perfect. And by the way, your God already thinks you're probably doing a great job, even in the midst of all your imperfections. So let's, let's be real about that. We will continue the journey. Up next, we're going to revisit an interview I did with Gary Chapman on the five love languages. Welcome back, friends. You know, um, a few months back, I I talked to Dr. Gary Chapman. He's a nationwide marriage counselor, pastor, seasoned uh, writer, and author. He's the author of the bestseller, uh, the book, The Five Love Languages, How to Express Heartfelt Commitment to Your Mate, which is a bestseller. Everybody's heard about it. And I wanted to go uh, to go revisit his interview. And so a few months um, back, as I was talking to him, I, I asked him um, to help us to know how to become fluent in the language of love. I began the interview by asking if he had any idea that his book would be so popular. You know, Matt, uh, when I wrote the book, I knew that the concept would help people because I'd been using it in my counseling for several years. Yeah. But no, I had no idea that it would sell uh, now 10 million copies. Is it in 10 English. million? And be translated now into 50 languages around the world. Unbelievable. And because, I mean, I've written a book and it's like, it's hard. Books are hard. And to even know if they're going to sell. And But I have so many people in my office and, and they're citing your book all the time. Every time I say, you know, people have different needs. The first thought that comes to mind is the are the five love languages. Walk us through these five love languages. One of them is words of affirmation using words to affirm the other person. You look nice in that outfit. I really appreciate what you did. One of the things I like about you is it's just using words to affirm them. Mm. You can speak the words. You can write the words. I guess you could sing the words, Matt. (laughs) Let's let's not go there. (laughs) (laughs) But it's using words to affirm the other person. Uh, You know, there's an ancient Hebrew proverb that says, life and death is in the power of the tongue. Mm. So when you give your spouse compliments, you are, you are building them up. When you give them critical remarks, it's tearing them down. Yeah. So words of affirmation. Uh, another love language is gifts. It's universal to give gifts as an expression of love. Uh, my academic background before I studied counseling was anthropology, the mm. study of cultures. 
We've never discovered a culture where gift giving is not an expression of love. It's universal. Really? You know? Yeah. The gift says, hey, they were thinking about me. Look what they got for me. And I like to say uh, the gift doesn't have to be expensive. Uh, you can pick a flower in the front yard. That's what children do. Yeah. I mean, they pick dandelions. Dandelions. Give them to their mothers. That's right. You know? So don't, they don't have to be ex- expensive. Uh, the old saying is, it's the thought that counts. But I like to remind folks, it's not the thought left in your head that counts. It's the gift that came out of the thought oh, yeah. in your head. Right. So, so gifts. And then there's uh, acts of service, doing something for your spouse that you know they would like for you to do. You mentioned washing dishes, you know. Yeah. It could include things like vacuuming floors, cooking meals, uh, mowing grass, watching the car, walking the dog, changing the baby's diaper. Woo, big <laughs> act of <Right>. service. <laughs> Anything you know your spouse would like for you to do. You know the old saying, Matt, actions speak louder than words. That's true for these people. So it's, true. This is their love language. Because you could actions. sit and you could tell this person you love them. But they just want to see it. They want it. They want the service. Absolutely. You know, uh, my my love language is words of affirmation. So when I got married, what did I do? I gave my wife words of affirmation. That's right. I didn't know anything about love languages, but I just knew that's the way you express love. You know, so I gave her words of affirmation. And uh, I discovered later uh, that didn't make her feel love. In fact, one night she said to me, you know, you, you keep on telling me that you love me. If you love me, why don't you help me? (laughs) <laughs> yeah, why don't you get off your duff and vacuum the floor? It's so true. Yeah, so act the service, and then there's quality time, giving your spouse your undivided attention. I do not mean sitting on the couch watching television right. because someone else has your attention. I'm talking about sitting on the couch with the TV off, looking at each other, talking to each other, or taking a walk down the road together and talk, or going out to eat, assuming that you talk. You know, Matt, you can almost always tell the difference between dating couples and married couples in (laughs) a restaurant. You know, dating couples are looking at each other and talking. Married couples are sitting there and eating or, more likely, looking at their smartphone, you know. (laughs) So true, isn't it? So now, I mean, and that's a big, that's a a thief of of a person that loves quality time is when you pull that phone out. Oh, yeah, absolutely, absolutely. So quality time, and then number five is physical touch. We've long known the emotional power of physical touch. That's why we pick up babies and hold them and kiss them and cuddle them. And long before the baby understands the meaning of the word love, the baby feels love, Mm. the physical touch. So in marriage, it's such things as holding hands, kissing, embracing, the whole sexual part of the marriage, uh, hand on their shoulder, uh, driving down the road, you just put your hand on their leg. Uh, you know, sitting around the house, you trip them. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'm kidding, man. yeah but you I'm tease, you touch. You t- I mean, but it's, it really <laughs> don't, is. It's kind of any physical. <laughs> yeah, a Did, physical touch. Yeah, I think it's fascinating um, how you've uh, because this is the complaint. Everybody has a complaint, right? And one of the things that I love about your approach is it's pretty obvious what your partner's uh, love language is simply by what they complain about. Yeah, the complaint reveals the love language. You're exactly right. If your wife says, we don't ever spend any time together anymore, she's telling you, you quality time is her language. Uh-huh. Uh, if your husband says, I don't think you would ever touch me if I didn't initiate it, yeah. he's telling you physical touch is his language. You know, If you go on a business trip and come home and your spouse says, you didn't bring me anything, <laughs> they're telling you. There's a gift. Gift is their language. You know, Matt, I found... 
that husbands in particular tend to get defensive if their wife brings up something, complains yeah. about something. You know, if, if she says we don't spend any time together, he's likely to say, what do you mean? We went to dinner Thursday night. Yeah. You know, but, but really, when your spouse, husband or wife, is giving you a complaint about something, they're really telling you what their love language is. And, and what's amazing, too, is, is kind of the opposite of this. So if I go home and I'm, I like physical touch and I want a hug, but my wife has presented a really amazing dinner— She's probably giving me an act of service, um, a dinner. Um, and so I could actually just notice, okay, my wife loves service, so she's serving me. She's trying to love yeah. me my way. And when I'm touching my wife, it's not just that I'm a dirty old man. It might mean that I'm actually just loving her my way. So this helps me understand how they're trying to love me. Absolutely. Observe the behavior of your spouse. If they're always doing things for you, as you indicated, then acts of service is probably their language. If they're always touching you and wanting to hug you, then physical touch is likely their language. If they're always giving you verbal compliments, then words of affirmation is likely their language. They're speaking their own language. So that's another clue. Just observe their behavior. And and you may as well, if you're going to be with this person forever, you may as well learn their language. You know, Matt, I really feel that strongly. Uh, a man said to me some time ago, he said, uh, he said, Dr. Chapman, I read your book, and my wife and I took the quiz in the back of the book, and uh, I found out that her love language is acts of service. He said, but I'm just going to tell you and her, if it's going to mean my vacuuming floors and my washing dishes for her to feel loved, you can forget that. Mm. And I said, well, that is your choice. If you want to live with a wife who has an empty love tank, that's your choice. I much prefer to live with a wife who has a full love tank. You know, if it's vacuuming floors and washing dishes, I say, give me the vacuum. You yeah. know, it's a small price to pay to live with a happy woman. Mm -hmm. So love is, is the desire to enhance the life of another person. And if you understand their love language, why would you not want to speak that language so that you're living with a person who feels loved and is secure in that love and will likely reach their potential for good in the world because they feel loved by you? That was Dr. Gary Chapman in an interview that we uh, had with him a few months ago. Again, Gary teaches the, from the book The Five Love Languages, and honestly, one one of the just perennial favorites, I think, of most marriage counselors, this idea that each and every one of us uh, finds love differently, we seek love differently, and we give love differently. It really would be valuable, I think, for all of us to look at our relationships and ask ourselves, how do we fit into it? How do we, um, how do we love our partner, and how do they want to be loved? In the end, too, it might be the great antidote to a lot of the selfishness that we see in the world. Obviously, I'm going to try to love the people around me uh, the way I would love them, with words of affirmation, maybe a hug or touch. But in the end, it's also just as important that we start to see how others need to be loved. And also that we judge what our partners are doing um, with the idea that they are trying to love us. Uh, again, if somebody wants more touch— they're not doing that just because they're weird or they're just creepy or they're just your, you know, they just, if they want and to give you a hug and that's your spouse, what they may be telling you is that's how they feel close to you. So each and every one of us could probably gather and garner more lessons um, in how to love. You can't be too good 
at loving another person and being loved in this world. So just a little bit of advice again from the show. Remember, our goal here is to help you live longer, love stronger, and lead healthier, happier lives. And we're not going to stop till we can till we can make this world a better place. That is uh, that's our promise. We will continue the journey. More fun next hour. More insights in how to be the good in the world. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. When you talk about morality, the reason we do what we do and why we do it, it's and we don't consciously sit there and say, I will now go try to look better by being morally superior to everybody. But we all know somebody that has to tell us when we're doing something wrong. Or I had friends growing up in high school that if I I would make a joke that they would laugh at, but then they'd be like, oh, Matt, shouldn't say that. And it it was hilarious. That's why they were laughing. And they're like, man, what's wrong with me? Why, Why do I say that? Because I must be such a misfit. Anyway, morality. And one of the things I talk a lot about when I work with my clients is we, we there's a thing called logical force. Okay, so logical force is when we make a decision based on logic, not morality. For example, um, if you have a friend that called you a name or embarrassed you at, a, at an event, it would be logical that you don't talk to her, I guess, for a week. Ignore her. Ben does this all the time with the producers around him. It's very effective. Well, okay. And um, we're talking against it now, so you wouldn't want to probably argue that it's effective. I just need to put that in. Okay. Sorry. So, so you're justified, right? Because you're doing something that is right. If you went and interviewed your friends, nine out of your ten friends, if you had ten friends, Ben, nine out of ten of them would say, yeah, I'd be mad too, and I would ignore Stacy. I'd ignore her. Because that was totally rude. The problem is, even if it's even if it's logical for you to be mad, even if it's uh, and you can see this in our political world, even if it makes good political sense for you to put someone down, for you to destroy someone's career or you know credibility, it, just because it is logical and it it logically can be justified, it doesn't make it moral, right? Your morals, your moral value system and your logic system don't all they don't go together because many times the most moral thing you can do when you see something that's been done wrong, like let's go to the story of the guy that killed the lion. Um, I guess you could gang up and jump in and send it to everyone you know and show how moral you are, or you could just shut your flapper and Go make a donation to preserving animals, right? But no one would know about that. So what's the point? What's the point? Why would I do something that nobody knows about? I guess because it's moral. So when I think of a moral person, I think of a Gandhi, uh, a Buddha, Mother Teresa. These people didn't promote their actions. They just acted. I think you're being naive, Matt. (laughs) 
is that are you trying to show are you trying to get me mad so i would no i'm trying to be logical your larynx um gotta look after yourself in this world see again thank you thank you mr trump um that's a perfect example that's a perfect example all of the sudden it's logical to defend yourself. You feel like you have to defend yourself. Even the guy that was going to rush the stage, he was making a good point. Donald Trump's a bully, so all I wanted to do is just take the – I just wanted to take his his speaker away, his pulpit away. I wanted to get rid of his stand. I didn't want to let him have his voice anymore. Logical. Logical. Not so logical when you think of the fact that there was tens of thousands of people there that would have stopped him. Uh, 12 or so, he said, you know, Secret Service people that could have killed him or killed someone else trying to stop him. Not super logical, but he feels like he has moral authority to do that. I guess one of the problems we run into in our society is we think we have a right, and that right means we have no responsibility. We have a right to say what we need to say, to use our voice, to be mad and to take a stand and even charge the stage. We have a right to do this. But there's also a responsibility. Do you know how bad that could have gone? Secret Service that have weapons. This guy could have either been killed or other people harmed or injured or Donald could have had a heart attack. Things could have happened. There's a responsibility that comes along with all of this. So just because you have a moral right or a right, logical right, it doesn't mean it's going to be moral and healthy for you. And remember, check your own gut. If Why do you need to post certain things? Look at what you're posting. If you're somebody that is constantly posting political things or constantly having to beat up the latest issue morally, um, why are we doing that? Ask yourself, what does what do I gain by being this type of person? In the end, you're probably not actually improving your moral system. In the end, your moral system is more between you, your God, you and your people around you, you and the followers that respect you and trust you. That's where your moral system creates strength, not in the masses necessarily. Unless you're somebody that is always in the masses uh, with people following you, I'd keep your moral compass fine-tuned to the people around you. Anyway, uh, closest to you, by the way. We'll take a break. Stick with us. We can't do the show without you. We'll be back in just a few minutes. You're listening to the best of the Matt Townsend Show. Matt, if you could just go to a therapist, or if you didn't need to go to the therapist, and you could just do it yourself, we're going to put a lot of therapists out of business. Ben's like, yes. I mean, therapists do great work, but many times they're just, they're they're really just reflective listeners, right? They're listening well. And what would happen if you had a friend that was a, just a really good listener? Are you that kind of friend that you can perform that listening function, um, you know, for your partner to, to help get their emotions out? Oh, it's it's not easy. I get it. I know. I know. It's not easy. And so um, when you think about it, and I, I see this a lot in my practice, there's there's these signs, okay? I call them, you don't need to just always be, I don't know, totally ready and engaged to just listen to your partner. But there are times you have to be ready to 
be engaged and listen to your partner. There's three signs I look for, and I learned about them. Um, I learned about this concept as an emergency medical technician. So right after uh, uh, when I was about 21, I guess, I was an EMT on an ambulance, and I was certified in you know life support or basic life support and uh, learned all the tools and the rules and, and how, to, how to basically take care of somebody in an ambulance on the way to the hospital. And one of the first things they taught us is you got to check vital signs, right? Vital signs, because you need to know where your patient is. There's a very basic baseline for where your patient is, and you need to check, you know, pulse, uh, respirations, if you could, oxygenation, see how well they're oxygenating. You could take a, a blood pressure, just basic signs. And the neat thing about humans is we pretty much have these very basic vital signs. And then what happens is there's a very powerful um, pattern that doctors and, and hospitals use where when you come in and see them, you can say whatever you want to say about why, what you're feeling, and they'll be listening to you. But while they're listening to you, they're going to check your vital signs. Right? They're going to check your temperature. They're going to check a bunch of different things. All of those are signs of something going on deeper down. And what I have found is just like we have it physiologically, we have vital signs. Emotionally, we have vital signs as well. So there's three signs I'm constantly looking for in the people that are around me. Negative emotion is a sign. There's a sign of something deeper going on. And if you see negative emotion in somebody, instead of yapping, instead of arguing and telling them your point of view, I wouldn't tell them. I would just try to understand where their emotion is coming from. So I look for negative emotion. I look for misunderstanding. And I look for mistrust. When I see those signs, I know I need to kind of get out of my agenda and get into the agenda of the other person. Right? So if, if my... If my spouse comes home and they're slamming doors, that's negative emotion. I should see that, pay attention to that. I should try to understand what's going on. Hey, babe, I can see you're frustrated. Tell me what's going on. I'm just mad because the kids took my whatever and I can't find it and I've got to go use it right now. That's frustration. Behind every negative emotion, you're going to hear a story. People want to tell their story because they would love the emotion to go away. So what if as humans, we could just start paying attention to the negative emotion, the misunderstandings. Misunderstanding simply means when something's going on and you don't know why it's going on and there's a misunderstanding. If, I'm, if, if I have a, a person that's, that's quiet and, and shuts down, I'm going to know they have negative emotion and I don't understand exactly why. I shouldn't just guess. Is this because of what happened last year? I mean, last year's example of, of this same, you know, behavior may not be very accurate. So I, what I'd love to do is recognize the emotion. You seem really upset. What's going on? Share with me why you're upset. Because if I could get the story, that would increase my understanding, right? And then if I could understand the person and not, you know, make them worse, then they could trust me. So that's what we're looking for in our relationships. Emotional management, understanding, and trust. That's the best thing I've ever learned to know when I need to be listening to somebody. When I see that they're negative emotionally, when I don't understand why and I don't understand their reasoning, try to understand it, and do they trust me to share it? Anyway, that's where I'd start working with the people I love, the people I care about, a little coach's corner for you right there. 
Emotional management, it's hard stuff, let alone doing it with each other. Stick with us. This is the Matt Townsend Show. We'll be right back. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. You know, social media shows us smiling faces surrounded by happy people in beautiful locations. But we all know that it's just a moment in time and not necessarily a state of living. The time in between those when those pictures were taken and posted can be filled with loneliness. And uh, for many, this loneliness is uh, is overwhelming, especially as as we get older. Elderly Americans suffer more and more loneliness, according to research studies, especially in times of winter. But this doesn't have to be the case. Joining us to talk about um, the power of being alone, the power of solitude, Dr. Kim Haynes Eitzen argues in her article that one isn't always the loneliest number, and she's going to show us how through history uh, there's great examples of how to gain power in solitude. Um, Dr. Kim Haynes Eitzen, thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you. I'm happy to be here. Now, you have a, you have a history. You've studied ancient Mediterranean religions with specialty in early Christianity, early Judaism. Talk about, uh, I mean, there's a history of, of nomads or of, of hermits, people that would, that would live alone and, and found incredible peace in being alone. That's right. Um, I mean, we have both. We have abundant evidence of, of certainly people living on the move, the nomadic life, but we also have... Um, stories about individuals who decided for various reasons to leave their city urban context and go out into the wilderness. Um, And I work especially on this movement um, monasticism in early Christianity. And one aspect of that is this decision that some individuals made, um, say, in Egypt or Sinai, um, to leave their urban center um, and go out into the desert. Hmm. And they did it, they did it, I guess, for spiritual reasons. I mean, there are a lot of examples of, uh, in Scripture, that like the mountains were the temples where they would go commune with their God or the deserts. It was a spiritual journey for many. It was certainly a spiritual journey. Um, and in many ways, the stories are crafted after some of the biblical stories about going into the wilderness. Um, so the, the wilderness has this sort of multiple valences to it. On the one hand, it's this place that you go and you are tempted, you're tried, you're put to the test. And on the other hand, it's a place where you have revelation. Um, you discover things, you might have visions. So it, it's, it's a very interesting um, it's a, an interesting landscape, an interesting place. We're looking at this kind of paradox of place. Do we live in a time, um, we now find out more and more, in fact, BYU did a study about loneliness, that, you know, being lonely or feeling lonely is actually, you know, it's, it's as, as harmful to your health as smoking many packs of cigarettes a day. It, it, we're finding that it has some impact on us, but I'm assuming that that's people that are lonely maybe without a purpose or without going through uh, a spiritual journey like we saw with some of these, these, uh, these examples you're giving us. 
Yes. Well, I think. I mean, I'm not. I'm not a modern psychologist, but or a doctor. But I've read these some of these studies, and I think that loneliness certainly is has negative health effects. Um, what's not clear to me, though, is whether you one one can be lonely in the middle of many people in the midst right. of many people, and so it doesn't necessarily mean the same thing as solitude. That's true. Um, and I think we all feel this pull between this hyper-connected world that we live in and a, a, sometimes a, a yearning for some solitude. Um, and how does one find that aloneness in a good way? But artists and composers, um, religious hermits have, have valued that experience of solitude. Yes. Talk about um, what you learned in your research about what specifically what what specifically creates the the more peaceful moments of of being alone or solitude. What what is made up in that time that makes it special? Well, um, that's a good a good question. I think for the for the stories that I study um, about these hermits. One of the aspects that I'm most interested in is their um, their references to sounds. And there is a curious kind of tension in um, stories about the desert. Some, some say, well, the desert is a place where you're, it's silent. Hmm. So you leave this noisy city, you go to the desert, and it's silent, it's quiet. And that's how you'll have inner peace. On the other hand, the desert is often talked about as the place of howling wilderness and the terrible winds. Um, so I have one story I'm working on by a bishop from Alexandria in Egypt. The bishop's name is Athanasius, and he writes the story of this man named Antony, a young man who leaves the city, goes into the desert, hoping, I mean, really to, to, to find this kind of freedom from disturbances freedom from distractions. Some of the language almost sounds like our contemporary world. And when he goes out to the desert, he encounters all sorts of noises, some of them made by demons. Lots of stories about demons making noises out there. And they crush in on him, they beat in on him, but there's there's a real interesting kind of tension between this hyper-distracted, noisy world and this search for a quiet that's not just external, but also internal, a kind of quietude or stillness. Mm. That's powerful. That, yeah, the, and, and especially to create like a balance between these, these quiets. Right, right. I think that's part of what they were looking for. And as this tradition um, of monasticism develops, we have growing texts that really focus on how one develops that sense of inner quietude even in the midst of distraction. Mm. Can one cultivate it? They, the language is very much about growing. Can you grow within yourself this inner sense of quiet? Boy, but how appropriate would that be for today when we have so much distraction, so much noise? I mean, I guess this is why we always see those stories of you know, the Buddhist monk at the top of a mountain, sitting alone only in his quietude. That's, that's right. I think that it's still a contemporary. And there's, 
even in our country, this country, there's a growing movement to cultivate mindfulness, quiet, meditation. Um, it becomes in some ways more urgent, more necessary as the world gets increasingly noisy. Do you Were there things that you could see in their writings of these hermits or in this bishop's writing that would give us insight into how to create the quietude? What are some of the what are some of the things we we must do to actually sit in the silence and and uh, and let it kind of vibrate in us? Well, one of the things they talk about is, um, I mean, we might put it in, in our our language today. We might say, have a mantra. One of the, the things that they talk about is memorize some scripture and repeat repeat that scripture, huh. or memorize the Jesus prayer. Um, have words under your breath. You may not be necessarily speaking it out with a full voice, but cultivate a practice. It's a, it's a kind of training your mind um, and cultivating this stillness with a repetition of words. So the books of uh, the Psalms were used frequently um, for this kind of practice. And it's it's almost like to do so, you're using your mind to hold a thought uh, or an idea while you're able to to not necessarily fixate on the idea, but allow space to have other thoughts come in. That's right. That's right. And there's there's one other there's another piece to this in the stories that we have. What often seems to have happened, and again, we don't know numbers how many people actually undertook to show their their Christian faith by going into a life of solitude. But um, one of the things that happens in these stories is that sometimes these individuals, these hermits, become quote-unquote famous, and they attract visitors. And so the the other tension going on in in these stories is that they've gone out to the desert for some solitude, for quiet, and people start flocking to them hmm. or to, to get prayer from them or to just to see them. Um, and so the story of Antony, as Athanasius tells it, he has to keep going farther and farther and farther into the deeper recesses of the desert. <laughs> he just really wants to get away. That's right. <laughs> he really wants to get away. Again, we're speaking with Dr. Kim Haynes Eitzen, who... Uh, is a professor of ancient Mediterranean religions with a specialty in early Christianity, early Judaism, and uh, uh, religion in late antiquity at Cornell University. She's teaching us about the joyous solitude that she learned about from the early hermits. And they might be teaching us how to to manage being alone in life. Um, One of the things I noticed, that's interesting that as these as these uh, hermits would be able to find more peace and be more at one with this this higher power in life, it attracted people to them, and yet their their ultimate objective wasn't necessarily it wasn't relational at all. It was it was very almost individual. It, well, I guess it was communing with a higher power. Yes, um, because they yeah. kept moving away as pe- as people would come. Um, they would move away. We, it seems like we live in a society today where we are more relational in a way. We, we keep, through social media and all sorts of st- 
strategies that we now have, um, yes, we keep circling back to one another in, in, in various, various means. Um, so I think on one level it's different, but on, in another way it's fairly similar, because I think what's coming out in these stories is a problem that we all face today, which is how much, to de- how much togetherness, how much aloneness, and um, finding that kind of balance between enough time to reconnect with oneself and enough time to feel connected to others. It's true because it's there's there are many of us that can't be alone. We don't right. want to be alone with our thoughts, with our minds, and um, with that higher power. That's interesting. Did, yes, I, I think it can be. I mean, the stories um, do talk about terror, you know, that it's not all peace and... Uh, it's not something where the story is crafted and it looks like this figure goes to the desert, instantly finds peace. He, he goes to the desert the way the story is told, and he does battle with his thoughts, with his, you know, his inner demons, with external forces. He's doing battle. Um, it's, it's partly a testing and a trying, and it, it, it takes the way the story told it takes a long time to cultivate a sense of quietude there's there's i think for many of us there's a terror in being completely alone mm. were were these hermits at a certain age um it, it is interesting in our society where as seniors age they tend to have more time alone but that aloneness for many of them is is terrifying like we're hearing about here um, but were these hermits that you studied younger than seniors, or were they doing this older in age? Well, all we really have to go on in this case um, are these narratives that depict them as as young. Um, Antony is probably in this story roughly the age of twenty. Um, the way the story is told, his parents have both died. He has a younger sister. And he begins to feel burdened by all the pressures upon him and decides he sells everything. Uh, Part of the story is he's going past the church, um, and he hears the story, um, uh, the passage from the Gospel of Matthew, if you would be perfect, go sell everything you Mm -hmm. own and give to the poor. And he takes that literally. He sells everything. He he prepares some sort of fund or something for his sister, the way the story is told, and then he begins to head in increasing stages farther and farther away from the city, from the village. And Yes, so he's, he's younger. I think in many cases it's hard for us to tell, although when we look at some of the sources for monasticism in the 4th and 5th century, we it's a mix of ages. We certainly have people who are older, who have had families who decide to take up a monastic life later in life, they are joining a monastery in that case. So that is a, another kind of community. Um, they, I, they, they don't quite fit into the category of hermit. We know a little bit about children at these monasteries. Um, so it's a real mixture of ages, I think. That is fascinating. Is it, um, as you look at it, again, you could go to a monastery with... Uh, 
with monks that have taken a vow of silence, and they can all be sitting in the same space but seeking quietude. That's right. Yes. They can, be, they can take a vow of silence, and to, to speak would itself be a form of distraction. And so it, it disrupts this cultivation, cultivation of um, quietude. Wow. What what else have you learned? I can only imagine just some of the things you've forgotten, Kim, um, that the rest of us would benefit from living in such a chaotic world. What other things do you see um, that we maybe want to learn from these past hermits? I think one other important, one thing I've learned, um, and a, a sort of thread running throughout my research right now is about paying attention. And I think one of the ways they, they talk about this in terms of quietude, but they also talk about it in terms of a kind of attention. What holds our attention? Um, I, I'm particularly interested in how our acoustical environment, our, the sounds around us, whether that's people speaking or the sounds of, sil- uh, of sirens or the sounds of birds and water, how those kinds of sounds around us um, that we live in or within shape a sense of not only where we are, but who we are in that place. And I, I found by working on these texts and looking at the way they talk about the sonic environment um, in which these monks were living, even though we're really only getting hints here and there of that kind of environment, um, I think it says something about how we, how we pay attention. Hmm. Um, where we put our minds and how we attend to where we are and where we are in any given moment. Which is it's so important of a, of a discussion and probably investigation as so many people today are struggling with attentiveness and attention disorders. Yes. Well, we, we, we all have so many. For a while, it seemed like we were all supposed to be multitasking, but now they're telling us multitasking is not good for us. Yeah. Yeah, and so, you know, we have to now unlearn multitasking and and rethink what, where we put our energies, um, and how many things we're trying to do all at the same time. It's um, was it, I, I guess, each of the stories you've studied, just because of your focus of study, was it? It was all a spiritual, seemingly journey. Were, were there any hermits that you saw that were just maybe alone because of introversion? They just didn't, they weren't seeking, you know, transcendence or uh, a higher state of being. They just didn't like beings. Yes, that's, it's tricky because of the kinds of sources that we are, u- that I'm using. They are, I mean, they are stories. And it's very hard to tell, to separate out the way the story is told from the, what actually happened on the ground. So the stories are told in such a way to highlight, to amplify the religious dimensions, the spiritual dimensions to the story. And it would be hard to sort of say historically, well, maybe Antony really just left because he was just sick and tired of the city. You know, he wanted just a break from everything. Yeah. You know, it's hard to say what his motives were or the motives of other kind of solitaries. 
and the other thing I would say is that sometimes it's very often hard actually to recover archaeologically good evidence of hermits because they sometimes used caves. Mm. Sometimes there wouldn't be much, there's not a, a strong record. Most of our archaeological record of hermits comes from caves or small structures that are situated near monasteries. So the story says he's by himself, but then in terms of the material remains, it looks like there was still there in monasticism this combination of a hermit, but also connected to a communal monastery. Sure. Yeah. Um, Kim, as we as we wrap up, what's the one thing that we could take away from your research um, that would help us find this joyous solitude in our lives today? When we have that moment of time when we could be alone, is there one thing that you recommend we just learn to do? Well, the first thing I would say is if we could learn to breathe. Um, when these monastic texts talk about cultivating this quietude, they used word they use words like inspiration and um, they talk about breathing and they talk about prayer as a kind of breath and having you know something on your lips that you could utter that's helpful to you. So I think even the ability this I think is sometimes very, very difficult to reconnect with one's own cycle of breathing. Um, is a very useful way to start. Powerful, powerful stuff. Dr. Kim Haynes-Eitzen, thank you so much for your time and your great work there at Cornell University, doing what you can, it looks like, to help us understand uh, our history in order to to better live in our present. It's not easy finding solitude and uh, quietude amidst this world that we live in, but um, there are ways, breathing, praying, uh, meditating, recitation, powerful stuff. This is the Matt Townsend Show. When we come back, we'll be doing a little Coach's Corner, helping us all uh, to find the peace in the world. Because life doesn't come with a handbook, you need a coach. Here's Dr. Matt and his coaching corner. Play ball! Play ball, friends. You know, um, you wonder how much of our anxiety in today's day and age is coming from our inability to just sit alone. Think about the hermits that uh, Dr. Kim was talking about there, that they didn't have books to go sit alone and read. So they weren't reading. They weren't, um, you know, they weren't on the internet. They probably weren't listening to a podcast, right? They weren't just cooking up dinner all day. They, they weren't decorating their house. They weren't driving their automobile. They literally would just go sit and think and experience life and watch a bird and chase a grasshopper and watch the ants build their little home and be influenced. And their thoughts Think of how many of your thoughts today aren't even original, right? I mean, your thoughts are coming from someone else's thoughts or something you just heard on the news, or very few of our thoughts are actually original. But back then, they could create some original thoughts in their mind, a thought that didn't come from somebody else. 
Do you create that space in your life to actually think or to be inspired, to let spirit into you? Inspiration, uh, isn't it interesting how breath and inspiration um, are ways of getting this spirit into you? And do you have the space, do you have the time to actually sit? And do you not have it because you're just so busy, or do you not have it because deep down you dread the idea of having to be alone with your thoughts? Because, ugh, what would we learn? So scary. So think about it. How, how are you at being able to get inside of yourself and truly find peace? Um, are you able to truly go connect into a higher power? Do you have the ability to actually attend and pay attention to something? Um, and if not, are there ways in your life, that, are there certain things that you already know you should be maybe turning off, turning down, turning away from? or turning toward that might help you uh, create this quietude. We probably need more of it, don't you think? We need more of it. And again, we will always have an excuse for why we don't, because this world is always going to have the noise. But if the majority of what we have in life is noise, um, then all we have in our life is confusion, chaos, so if we need clarity, we, we probably need to create some space for it. There might be some ways to do that, simply even driving in your car. You don't have to make use of every second of your life by more education, more learning, more podcast, even more radio listening. Maybe it is time to turn the radio off. Maybe it is time to quit taking on those news feeds. Maybe it is time to look at social media and, and only once a week. And only for a short period of time. Making some choices. Again, you don't need to be, um, you don't need to be a hermit. But you, you also probably wouldn't be hurt right now by being a hermit and seeing if you couldn't let some spirit in. So you have some solitude, some true joy um, in your heart, in your life as you go through it. So interesting. Another uh, lesson brought to you by the hermits of the world. <laughs> Powerful stuff. We'll continue the journey up next. We're going to be revisiting uh, more of an interview I did with Gary Chapman, who's the author of the book, The Five Love Languages. Welcome back. You know, today on our shows, um, we've been revisiting some interviews that I did with Dr. Gary Chapman who is a nationwide uh, marriage counselor, a pastor, a seasoned writer. He's the author of the New York Times bestseller, The Five Love Languages, How to Express Heartfelt Commitment to Your Mate. His book has been read by millions uh, throughout the, the country and the world. And um, I, I can't tell you how many people I have talked to that, that are living day in and day out by his uh, Five Love Languages uh, concept. In our conversation that I've I've had with him, I I asked him um, what what he would say to people who who uh, who you know are in a marriage and in a relationship and they're struggling with the idea that they believe that love shouldn't be this hard. And a part of that is because when we're in love, we go through that phase when we're in love. All of this just kind of flows out of us. I mean, we, we're just pushed along by the euphoric feelings of, of that in-love experience, and we're doing all kinds of things that really aren't natural for us. But the lifespan of that in-love experience 
is about two years, average yeah. two years. We come down off the high, and that's when love has to be intentional. That's when love has to be learned. And if you don't learn to speak your spouse's language, the emotional love tank does get empty, and you begin to feel like they don't love me. Mm. They wish they weren't married to me, and life begins to look dark. But that doesn't have to happen. If you understand the love languages and you speak each other's language, when you come down off the high, you still feel love yeah. because you're receiving love in a language that's meaningful to you. And you're losing yourself. I mean, that's one of the ideas is that I guess people think that they're going to find the perfect mate instead of being the perfect mate. You know, instead of loving my partner, her way actually changes me. It makes me more charitable. Yeah, exactly. And you know what happens so many times, and this is what's tragic about it, is that people come down off that high, their differences emerge, they don't know how to love each other, they don't know anything about the love languages, and so they begin to argue about their differences, and they say nasty and hurtful things to each other, and before long they're asking, why did we get married? Mm. We don't even like each other. Yeah. And then you know what happens. They get, they get what I call the tingles. Yeah. <laughs> they get the tingles for somebody else. And that whole in love thing starts over with somebody else. And so they leave their spouse and go off with the second person. And we all know that the divorce rate in second marriages is higher than the divorce rate in first marriages. Right. So the answer is not following the tingles from person to person. The answer is learning how to love the person to whom you're now married. And you almost have to lose yourself, don't you, to, to find yourself. It's the old scripture. you got to lose your need to have it have to have your love your way per se and instead you're just going to love your partner their way and it seems like in a in a in a way you end up becoming more well-rounded in love well i think so you know love essentially is an attitude of giving it's the desire to enhance the life of your spouse and we all know that a person who is a loving person is going to enjoy life far more than a person who is self-centered in fact self-centered people will never have good marriages but people who choose to put others above themselves and reach out to love other people are not only going to enhance those people's lives, but they're going to enjoy life. Right. More. Yeah. Uh, you know, it's it's a thing that love love stimulates love. And when I choose to speak my wife's love language, it touches her at a deep emotional level. And she's far more likely to reciprocate and, and reach out to love me in my language. Uh, Gary, how long have you been married? Forty-five plus years. You know, it's fifty-three now. Is it really that? Is so that? Yeah. Oh. I got married when I got married when I was nine. Okay, <laughs> that's amazing. <laughs> Those were the good old days, weren't they, Gary? <laughs> oh man, that's but, beautiful. Know, Matt, though, uh, to be very honest with you, uh, Carolyn and I had real struggles in the early years of our marriage. I mean, severe struggles. Even though we re- we agreed on religious matters, we believed God was important and all of that, but we had tremendous struggles in our marriage, and maybe. That's why I'm so empathetic with people who sit in my office, and I know sit in your office, and yeah. say, we just don't see any hope. We just feel like it's, it's too many things have happened. You know, because I, I was there in those early yeah. years. And, you know, I, I thought I'd married the wrong person. I thought it's never going to work out. It's never going to get any better. Uh, but, you know, God helped us, and I have so much hope for other people. That, that their lives can be changed, and, and a lot of it centers around what we're talking about today, mm. and that is the choice to love the other person and then learn how to do it. And I love, I love that you're so real about that, because that's to, to know that you went through that, Gary, makes this even more credible, right? Because it was, it's learned. It's not just, this isn't yeah. hype, this isn't theory, this is real life. 
What percentage of this is an interesting statistic, if, if it's still the one I think it is. What percentage of the couples that you see share the same love language? Not very many. Uh, typically, a husband and wife will have a different love language. Now, yeah. couples, some couples do have the same love language. Uh, but if they have the same love language, uh, they'll have different dialects mm-hmm. <laughs> within yeah. that language yeah. that they prefer. But um, uh, most of the time, husbands and wives will have a different love language. Which is interesting because I think we assume when we're first all charged up chemically, we love everything. Every language is firing. Um, And we kind of settle into the ones that are more ours, right? I think so. And, you know, what I'm saying in the book is, first of all, you learn, you discover their primary love language. Then you give heavy doses of that. Then you can sprinkle in the other four mm-hmm. for extra credit. You yeah, know? <laughs> yeah. Uh, because any of us appreciate any of those five, but one of them is going to speak more deeply to us than the other four. Mm. How how were you impacted um, by? I mean, you also have degrees in you know religion, and you're a very you're a very you're a pastor. You're a very spiritual man. How did how did the spiritual side of your life impact a lot of your writing and work? You know, I think uh, one of the big things was that's what gave us the breakthrough in our marriage. Uh, you know, I was actually studying to be a pastor when I was going through all these troubles mm. in my marriage. And I remember the day I finally said to God, I don't know what else to do. I've done everything I know to do. It's not getting any better. And as soon as I said that, there came to my mind a visual image of Jesus on his knees washing the feet of his followers. You remember that? Yeah, story? yeah, totally. And I just heard God say to me, that's the problem in your marriage. You do not have the attitude of Christ toward your wife. And it hit me like a ton of bricks, Matt. You know, and I just said, because I I remember what Jesus said when he stood up. He said, I'm your leader, and in my kingdom, this is the way you lead. Hmm. The leader serves. Right. And I knew that was not my attitude. You know, my attitude in the early days was something like, look, I know how to have a good marriage. If you'll listen to me, we'll have one. <laughs> if you'll just be <laughs> quiet. <laughs> <That's right. laughs> so I blamed her, you yeah. know. But that day I got a different message. And I just said to God, Lord, forgive me. With all of my study in Greek and Hebrew and theology, I have missed the whole point. Mm. And, then I, and then I said, please give me the attitude of Christ. Well, and that and is so basic, isn't it? It's just, it is, it's a, it's it just really the attitude is. of charity, of love. Yeah. And, you know, looking back on it, it was the greatest prayer I ever prayed regarding my marriage because, really, God changed my heart, and he gave me a desire to serve my wife. I didn't know anything about love languages at that point, but I started asking her three questions. Uh, Honey, what could I do to help you? Second, how could I make your life easier? And the third question, how could I be a better husband? Mm. And she started giving me answers, and looking back on it, she was really teaching me how to love her. You know, I didn't realize all that, but sure. my attitude was changed. I wanted to help her, and, and, and she began to answer those questions for me. And in about three months, it didn't turn around overnight, but in about three months, my wife started asking me those three questions. Isn't that amazing? When you get, when you get two people who are reaching out, trying to serve each other, and wanting to learn how to serve each other, you're going to have a great marriage. And that's, that's, I think that's what God intended marriage to be. How, so what can I do to help? How can I make it easier for you, mm-hmm. and how can I be a better husband? Right. Yeah. And and the, and then le- and then listen, right? And then listen. And then listen. Yeah. Now take the take the information they give you and answer to that, and let that be a guideline on how you invest your time and energy in their lives. And uh, you know, love stimulates love, as I said earlier. Yeah. 
And, uh, you know, when a husband and wife are reaching out like that to each other, uh, you both then are free, free to, to use your talents and abilities to bless the world. And, uh, you know, I so wish, Matt, that we could rediscover that uh, in, the, in the church, that, that we're here to love other people. And when we do, we're enriching the world. Yeah. And it should start in the marriage, you know, and then it flows to the children and then beyond the family. The marriage is a, it's a different relationship, isn't it, than any other that we have? Because they're our peer, they're our equal, and yeah. they know everything about us. Yeah, yeah, it's 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 designed of God, I think, to be an intimate relationship. You remember in the in the book of Genesis where God said it's not good for man to be alone. You bet, you bet. You know, isolated, cut off, and God's answer was the creation of Eve, the institution of marriage, and then it says they will become one flesh. Yeah. It's the opposite of being alone. It's deep, deep intimacy. You know, it's it's a deep connection between the two of you. And when you learn how to share life like that, and in love and support and encourage each other, uh, I think you experience what God designed marriage to be in the first place. That was Dr. Gary Chapman, author of the book, The Five Love Languages, uh, in an interview that we we had with him, I think it was probably about a year ago, and we're revisiting those learnings. You know, one of the things, too, to remember that, um, that that's kind of fun when you listen to a guy like Gary talk, he he sees such a deeper purpose in the marriage than just, you know, some merging of two human lives. He sees that there's this other higher purpose of it, this connection to a higher power, this connection to um, something bigger. And so one of the things I've actually been doing more of recently and have found a lot of uh, insight in doing it is studying other people's marriages. It might be good for all of us to go start finding people in our lives that we think have great marriages and uh, no matter where you are in the marriage world, go start asking them questions about what their advice would be. What did they notice? Start learning about the impact that their marriage uh, um, has had uh, and what marriages influence them. Start learning what good marriage looks like because a lot of us, we just don't have those models maybe in our immediate circle, but they might be somewhere in our family line or you know, in our church, in our congregation. Just a little uh, fun advice. Uh, appreciate your time. Again, this is the Matt Townsend Show. We're doing what we can to help you be the good in the world. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. I mean, it's so true. We listen, we read. There's a bias, right? There's an inherent bias that we all have. And what it then does is it, it actually impacts our selection process, right? So if I am biased against somebody and I, you know, I don't like Joe Blow from my office and I think he's just out to get me, then I'm not going to select all of the data that I notice about Joe Blow, just the data that supports my hypothesis that he's a jerk, that he's out to get me. I may not notice that he gives, you know, that he buys an extra lunch for somebody. I may not notice that. Or that he even invited me to his son's wedding. May not notice that. I only notice that he's out to get me. And the same is true 
when we think about um, our political candidates, when we think about the person running, think about it. If you are a conservative, in the back of your mind, are you not constantly thinking about Hillary's email scandals and how they're eventually going to tear her apart? And ironically, you don't even hear many articles about her email scandals in the liberal media. So why won't the liberal journalists pick up on it? And it's only those right-wing conspiracy groups. Bias. There's just bias. There's inherent bias. Is there an inherent bias uh, to the fact that Bernie Sanders is is older and we want to know how old he is? And does age really matter? Well, it does with Bernie. But is Rubio too young? It depends. If you're pro-Rubio, you want a young guy like Rubio. Come on. It's amazing. And one year, a candidate's age matters, and another year, it shouldn't matter. And we just heard a huge discussion a couple weeks ago about Hillary Clinton. She's, she's a yeller. She's a screamer. She's always screaming. You wouldn't say that if she was a man. So it's about bias. Everybody on earth has it. And what uh, our great guest uh, was talking to us about is that scientifically we are going to make our argument not based on fact. We're going to first take our bias, our position, and then we're going to go look for the data that supports it. And the neat thing about data is you can make it say whatever you want it to say. That's why they call it the spin room. So after the New Hampshire election, you're going to see a bunch of spinners spinning. And so Hillary got close enough to Bernie that, oh, see, it wasn't a huge blowout. Or Bernie's pulling away, but of course he was going to. It's New Hampshire. He lives right by there. And we watch the spinsters. And more importantly, notice you. Notice yourself. What do you believe, and how does your bias impact the data you're choosing and the candidates you're favoring? You're listening to the best of The Matt Townsend Show. We thought that we would have, you know, a lot of time to focus. With all this technology, it would buy us more time, right? More time to be with the people we love, more time to be attentive and in tune. And in reality, what ends up happening is not even close. We still don't have time. And so – and what I'm talking about is a simple idea of being in love, right? So when somebody thinks about being in love, they always think of the love part. Like the, the love is the, is the important part. You got to – as long as you have the love part, life is going to be great. But what I'm going to be focusing on is not the love part but the in part. You know, the in. You got to be in love. It's kind of like being in debt. It's not the debt. It's being in the debt that's the problem. When you're inundated in the debt, ugh, it's the problem. But if we could be inundated in the love, then life would be great. We're just overwhelmed and so full of love for each other. So when we talk about it, I'm going to get into four different things to make sure that we get in. And our nature, really, uh, we've been told, is a great way to get in. And part of that is because it just automatically probably takes you to a whole different level of in vibration of life, I guess, because normally we're just kind of vibrating off of our screens and we're just feeling all of this intensity. In our marriages, in our relationships, four keys to get in. 
the relationship. Number one, you got to tune into your partner. I've been married 25 years in a couple of days, and um, here's the deal. If I don't listen to my partner, if I don't pay attention to my partner, then I do not have a clue what her needs are, her wants are. You have got to learn, all of us have got to learn to tune in to what's really going on with our spouse. What are they really thinking? By the way, like you remember the old radio tuner where you had to tune in and dial in the radio? You might have to adjust it depending on where you were. But the minute you tuned in, it would eliminate a lot of the static. It would get rid of some of the interference. We've got to figure out and be present enough with our spouses to be able to tune into what they're really trying to say. And after 25 years, we should be really good at it, right? Well, only if you've been in. If you haven't been in, then you're not going to be great at being able to dial into what your partner's saying. Some solutions for that are very simply find ways to clarify what your partner is saying. Don't assume you know what they mean because they're saying certain words. Ask them, what do you mean by that? When you say that, I don't know. I'm worried about today. It's not going to go so well. Don't assume you know exactly what that means and don't just like answer it for them. What do you mean? What are you worried about? And let them explain more. Spend more time actually looking at your partner. You know, it's easier to tune into something that you're looking at, right? It might be easier to tune into somebody that you're listening to. So we can tune in with our eyes. We can tune in with our ears. We can tune in with our whole heart. We got to tune into our partner. Another rule, allow your partner in. One of the biggest complaints I hear from par- uh, in marriage uh, coaching and relationship coaching is, I don't even feel like I know my husband. He doesn't even let me into his world. She asks you how your day is. You're like, fine, my day's fine. No more need to discuss it. Do you let your spouse in? Do they share what's really in their heart and in their mind? Do they feel safe enough to share it? Because if they don't feel safe enough to share it, they're not going to share it. Are you a, a safe spouse or will, you know, you get laughed at? We've got to allow our partners into our fears, our beliefs, our concerns, and that means you've got to be able to hear it. Uh, there was some interesting research done of women that say they want to hear what's going on in their husband's heart, what they're thinking in their mind. And as soon as the husband shares it, almost inevitably, the wife's like, oh, I can't believe you're thinking that. You always think that. I know. My bad. If you want to, your partner to share more, you've got to be able to handle what they bring, and you've also got to be able to make it safe. Another rule is stay more involved in each other's lives. A complaint I hear all of the time is it doesn't seem like my partner's even into the family. They're not even paying attention. They're never involved, which means, Dad, you need to help more. Be there for homework. Help your kids do their assignments. Run the carpools more. Pick up the team. Drive the team. Be involved. Also, can I just suggest watch out for how we do our distribution of chores and of um, division of labor. You will make these divisions when you're young, maybe naive. The wife does everything on the inside of the house. The husband does everything on the outside of the house. Be careful, ladies. Because there's because we have lighting and technology inside the house, you can end up working all night till midnight, but we can only mow the lawn till it's dusk. If you want a fair and equal division of labor, we're going to have to learn to talk about it. And then last but not least, you got to touch. you got to be in touch with each other. If you remember, that's where a lot of the chemicals started in the first place. So make sure you're touching. Uh, and you can touch, you know, in non-sexual ways. You can hold hands. You can... Hug, you can kiss in front of the kids and drive them crazy. 
That's the reason we're in love, right? Keep in touch. That's one of the goals. Stay involved. Allow your partner in and tune in to your partner. That's the way you stay in love. Interesting stuff, folks. Hoping to help you see the good in the world. We'll take a break. This is the Matt Townsend Show. If I told you that you get more done when you work less, would you believe me? Well, our next guest uh, has uh, has done a lot of research on it. Dr. Alex Pang, who's the author of many books, including the bestseller Rest, Why You Get More Done When You Work Less, and a new article that he published, uh, The Most Successful People Make Room for Rest. And he's here today to talk with us about um, how overworking ourselves to meet deadlines, uh, it wears us out, and it actually doesn't necessarily mean we're more likely to, to meet the deadlines. Dr. Alex Pang, thank you for being with us. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. You bet. So how does resting, taking a break, getting, taking a rest, actually help us get more done? Well, um, <clears throat> it's useful in a couple ways. I mean, it's sort of, first of all, there is the simple physical fact that you know, or of minds need rest just in the same way that bodies need food. And I think that, or if, uh, that trying, to, or if, uh, trying to push ourselves past the point where we're able to operate effectively actually turns out to be counterproductive. The second thing is that when you look at the lives of really creative people, you know, artists or Nobel Prize winners or famous, you know, famous novelists, one of the striking things you find is that they actually often labor far fewer hours than you would think you would need in order to write great expectations or make mm. great discoveries. But what they do is they work very intensively for periods of you know, several hours, maybe four or five hours, and then they also then rest in very consistent kinds of ways, ways that it turns out help them be more creative, to see new insights, to turn over ideas, so that the next time they go back to work, um, they've got sort of, uh, the, sort of more interesting ideas to kind of pick up on and to, and to push forward. Oh, that's, that's great news, <laughs> because I've always, th- <laughs> I've always thought that's kind of how I work. Um, it, it's almost more in fits than it is, you know, this constant stream of, of work. But part of it, too, I think, is just we need to think, don't we? We need time to think. Absolutely. And, you know, I think one of the things that we often underestimate is how valuable those periods where we're apparently doing nothing, where we've worked hard, we've turned over a problem, um, and we've maybe hit a wall. And, you know, taking a, taking a period and, let's say, going for a walk or sort of doing something else that's, uh, that is diverting and low intensity can give our subconscious minds, our kind of creative minds, a chance to turn over those problems, to examine them maybe from a new angle, and to come up with an, you know, to come up with an answer that, would, you know, that often eludes our conscious effort. It's a kind of, you know, more productive version of that experience that we all have of trying to remember, you know, who was the name of that actor who was in that movie and yeah. that TV show. Right. And you can't remember it. Right. And then a few minutes later, when you're in the car or doing something else, the name <laughs> pops into your head. Owen Wilson. We just exactly. shouted out. You know, and, yeah. you know, it turns out that that same set of cognitive processes 
is what's behind sort of you know, discoveries like um, you know sort of Newton's Newton's recognition that you know sort of mechanical forces and gravity actually operate in the same way. Hmm. Um, so you know that kind of time turns out to be um, time that we can spend very very well, very Do- well. Does it matter what your job is? Um, uh, it seems like you know if you're if you're a creative type, this actually makes a lot of sense. Um, mm-hmm. But is it is it the same if you're a mechanic? Actually, yes, because um, you know work. There's a there are, there are lots of kinds of work that we think of as being less creative but actually still require an awful lot of creativity. Right. Um, there's, a, you know, there's, a, there's actually a wonderful book called, Soul, called Shop Craft about, sort of, uh, about motorcycle repair, where they mm. talk about right. how I actually, see. Yeah. you know, sort of, there's an incredibly, that's incredibly complicated stuff. And we often underestimate just how creative even what look like relatively simple tasks uh, or of, uh, turn out to be. And so I think that this is something that recognizing the value of rest is something that is good for uh, order for everybody. But even if you're in a field where you know where the main challenge is simply um, you know maintaining like a high level of intensity through the course of a day, rest is still very valuable for restoring the energy, mental and physical, that you spend during work and making it possible for you to you know come back the next day. And to do the kind of job that you want to do. Yeah, you um, you made a great argument in your your article uh, th- about um, uh, the one that we just recently talked about. The most successful people make room for rest. Mm-hmm. I- I- in there, you talk about the fact that so many business executives, so many historic, uh, you know, iconic business leaders, even you know, from Teddy Roosevelt as a president to Carnegie to all of to Forbes to all of these other people they made it a, a major point to make sure that they were getting out to nature and actually resting right you know and i think there was you know they reflected this older ideal that recognized that you know that rest was important that rest was a kind of reward for hard work you know that you didn't need to feel guilty about so long as you did the work first um you know, but also that rest had value, you know, that it was in those periods that you, ha- you gave yourself an opportunity not just to think about, you know, new ideas for your business or to solve problems, but also to reflect on the quality of your life, you know, to make sure that you, you know, or have had a perspective on what really mattered and what really mattered for you to do next. So, you know, I think that the, you know, and the fact that they were able to do this and have good lives and be fabulously successful mm. um, should, you know, serve as a, a sort of a, a serves, serves as a great reminder for us that, you know, that, uh, that constant overwork and an assumption that we need to, you know, dissolve the boundaries between, you know, work and life um, isn't necessarily what of the you know the the kind of um, magic road or the only road to success? Do you? I know you've done a lot of uh, also work in just what happens to the physiology in the brain and everything. Mm-hmm. What is going on while we're resting that's not happening while we're working? Right. Well, um, you know, when you kind of relax your mind and seem to kind of zone out, you think that your brain is kind of shutting off. 
But it turns out that what happens is that it's every bit as busy as it is when you are you know, or uh, dealing with traffic or, or you know, or, or trying to solve math problems. It's just different parts of the brain are active. And this is what um, neuroscientists call the default mode network. And one of the characteristics of the default mode network is that it seems to connect together parts of the brain that are used when we are engaged in creative activity. And so when you let the mind just do its own thing, it tends to kind of want to wander back to problems that we've been working on. And so this, it turns out, is, uh, sort of, is the mechanism that underlies that uh, sort of the phenomenon of having, you know, aha moments or unexpected insights. And that's why for creative people, taking the time, especially after you've been working hard on a problem, to just let your mind relax for a few minutes and sort of to, you know, to, gi to give your subconscious a chance to switch on the default mode network and to let it to do its thing turns out to be actually um, a, sort of a, a useful and, if you practice it, reliable way of getting insights and solving problems. Oh, yeah. It, where I do it every day where I, I, I actually, though, you know, introduce the problem or like I need to write an article and I'll, I will introduce the idea to my brain and then I, I, I just research some stuff but I let my subconscious or whatever it is work it and, exactly. it, and it works it. And then when I go sit down to write it, I'm, there, I'm ready. Right. You know, this is – and, you know, it's, it often sounds something that's kind of, you know, mis, uh, sort of mysterious or mystical. But yeah. actually, you know – Lots of writers have this, have this practice of stopping for the day in mid-sentence because they find that the next morning when they start up, um, it's, e it's, you know, it's easier, first of all, to complete a sentence than it is to you know, face the existential terror of a <laughs> blank page. Yeah. But psychologists have also found that if you know that you're going to be coming back to a problem later and, trying to, uh, and working on it, your subconscious actually will continue processing it even as you go off and do other things. And that's a practice that it turns out you can learn and you can get better at. Just at you know, it's it's no different from, you know, learning to drive or learning, you know, learning another language. It's just, you know, sort of it's a lot of repetition and practice, but you do actually get better at that. Mm. You you have a term you call deep play. Mm -hmm. What what is that, and how does that work into all of this? Well, it turns out that um, some uh, that lots of really you know ambitious competitive people have time consuming, expensive, sometimes dangerous hobbies. You know things like mountain climbing yeah. or you know solo you know sort of um, solo sailing. And so, why is it that people who otherwise are very you know, conscious of their time? invest in these things? What do they get out of it? And it turns out that for them, um, these, uh, or these kinds of serious hobbies, what I, or what I call in the book Deep Play, are valuable because they offer many of the same sort of psychological rewards as their work when it's going really well um, in a very different kind of context, often you know, physically much more demanding, um, and in a very different kind of time scale. So Scientists, for example, talk about rock climbing as being like science because you've got this, you know, you've got this big problem. You know, get, to the top of the, get to the top of the rock, 
that you break down into a lot of little parts. You attack them one by one. It requires a lot of concentration. But unlike experiments where you're never 100% sure that you're going to, you know, you're going to get the answer you think is right, mm. at the end of the climb, you've either made it to the top or you haven't. And that turns out to be a really rewarding thing for people who are working in very complex kinds of jobs, who are doing things that are very cognitively demanding. And I think that the other, you know, the other reason it's valuable is that um, you know, very often people who are really devoted to their work or who are really ambitious need something that is just as engaging as their work to get them out of the office. Right, yeah. sort of to you know to to give uh, in order to give yourself permission to go off and do something else, you need something that kind of feels as rewarding as you know sort of as your job, and so deep play serves that purpose in a way that um, often more casual kinds of uh, kinds of hobbies or lower intensity kinds of leisure um, turn out not to. Hmm. It's so it really is. It's fascinating to see kind of some of this coming together. Again, we're speaking with Dr. Alex Pang, who is the founder of the Restful Company and a visiting scholar at Stanford University. He's also the author of two books, Rest, Why You Get More Done When You Work Less and The Distraction Addiction. Um, Dr. Pang, talk to us about it sounds like the rest. It's interesting because rest seems almost the opposite of exercise, except um, really it almost seems like physical exercise is part of the component of rest. Yeah, you know, one of the things that surprised me most when I was writing the book was how many of the people I talk about, how many of the people who, are, uh, who, who practice, uh, practice these kinds of rest are actually really serious athletes. And partly that reflects the fact that, you know, that, uh, that um, cognitive work is actually physically very challenging. You know, your brain, when it's operating at full intensity, is, you know, is consuming energy like a marathon runner, and sort of literally. And so being in better shape means that you can, you know, you can, you can provide food and oxygen to your, sort of, to your brain in the quantities that it needs. But it also turns out that the best kinds of rest, the ones that are most mentally restorative and, or physical, and physically restorative are actually active rather than passive. You know, we often mm. think of rest as sitting on a couch with a remote in one hand and, you know, a bag of snacks in the other. And that has its place, but it's, but it's more often the case that, you know, the way to get over a stressful day at work or to, you know, prepare for a challenging week is not to, you know, just kick back, but actually, you know, to go for a run, to go to the gym, to do something that is going to be, um, you know, uh, that's uh, physically challenging, but also maybe psychologically engaging as well, that takes your mind off work, but also uh, gives you the energy that you need to face the next day. Yeah. It's, yeah, it's counterintuitive, but yet it would induce this state of well-being. Yeah. Talk about the, um, you know, as as we're trying to figure this out in our own lives and, you know, we're still trying to maybe push back on our our bosses or our business structure that that still buy into the old model that it's not as beneficial for people to rest. What would you say we should do 
um, just as individuals to, to start? Where do we begin to get more rest in our lives? Well, I think the first thing you've got to do is, you know, is take rest seriously. You know, recognize that it actually has value and it's something worth investing in. So, you know, first off, don't feel guilty about it, but also don't assume that you're going to be able to rest once you've gotten everything done, because, everything else done. Because, you know, these days we're never, you know, we never get to the bottom of our to-do lists. Um, I mean, I think that the, that, uh, that, uh, the next thing is that if you're in work that is, you know, that is cognitively challenging or sort of highly creative, that figuring out that it, this pattern of alternating periods of intensive work and dedicated deliberate rest is a really valuable thing. Mm-hmm. You'll be able to get more done over the course of a day if you work that way than if you, you know, try and maintain like a steady pace for you know, eight or nine hours. For people who are in jobs that, where the big challenge is maintaining, you know, a, maintaining a level of focus and intensity over the course of a day or that have more kind of psychological challenges to them. If you're in you know, medicine or law enforcement or, or, or retail, those people often have to push rest to evenings and to weekends. But the people who are really good at it, who have the, the longest, most prosperous careers, are the ones who take it really seriously. You know, for, for them, um, rest is sacred. You know, this often, I mean, for plenty of people, that gets expressed in terms of, you know, of observing a Sabbath. But for others, it's about not answering the phone on the weekends, you know, sort of putting the work away, not looking at email, and filling your time with other things that are going to be um, equally challenging, that are going to be restorative as opposed to merely passive. And I think that sort of between those two sets of practices, the daily ones, and the ones that involve nights and weekends and the preservation of your own private time for rest, you end, sort of, you can craft a life that is um, both sort of more creative and productive at the daily level, but also more fulfilling and longer lasting. Mm. Lots of the people I write about in the book, you know, sort of do their are active into their 80s or their 90s. So there seems to be something about this that not only you know, jump starts your jump starts your sort of uh, your professional career, but also uh, helps you have a longer career. Yeah, if I asked you the one thing, Alex, that would make the biggest difference, uh, what's one thing I could do tomorrow or today um, that would just immediately start to create benefit? You know, probably the. Um, I I will I will go out on a limb and and say that. Um, the, mo- the thing most of us can do that is uh, uh, beneficial is um, go for a walk in the middle of the day. You know, it doesn't even have to be very long. It can be, you know, 10 or 15 minutes. But the combination of, you know, of light exercise and sort of mental diversion and just being in a slight, you know, being in, being in a different place, even if you're just walking around, yeah. you know, on, uh, sort of inside your own building, um, 
can be can provide a psychological charge and a mental charge, particularly at that time of the day after lunch when you're starting to you know <laughs> get a little sleepy. You're starting to look forward to the end of the day. So you know, I think that the, you know that walking turns out to be something that is um, both physically good for us, but also psychologically and creatively beneficial. I oh, love that idea. Love it. Good stuff. Um, and we appreciate the interview, Alex. Thank you for your time. Man, nobody loves a, a walk more than me. I tell you, it's raining today, though. Come on. Hey, uh, up next, we're going to continue this journey. That, by the way, was Alex Pang, who's the founder of Restful Company. The book is, is titled Rest, Why You Get More Done When You Work Less. Uh, and uh, take a walk once in a while. Up next, we'll continue the journey. This is the Matt Townsend Show, helping you be the good in the world. I'm ready to go in, coach. Just give me a chance. Because life doesn't come with a handbook, you need a coach. Here's Dr. Matt and his coaching corner. Play ball! Welcome back, friends. Hey, when it comes to... uh, talent management remember it's always about people management these are all these are all relationships and there's always going to be a relationship uh, measurement as even as uh, he mark was taking us through his content um, from the talent magnet book every one of these ideas he was talking about a better boss a brighter future and a bigger vision each one of those and then by the way the ability to tell the story Those are all created through interaction. You know if you have a better boss by how you interact with them and how they interact with you. You know if you have a brighter future in your organization based on interaction. You know, based on – it's not just the fact that you have a really good mission statement or a really great company party. It's about the fact that you know what your purpose is in this organization. You can see – some light of day from where you are to where you want to be professionally. You can see that you're going to grow and be developed. You can see that because of your experience in the organization, you are actually elevating your abilities in your game, which will only increase your ability to get a job tomorrow. That all, every one of those things happens through interaction with human beings. Those human beings are your coworkers, your bosses, your team meetings, your your leaders, your HR department. We're doing this all day long, constantly. Um, and so remember, as you're, this is still about human relationships. This is about creating um, understanding. I, I can't uh, I, I I can't give too many details, but I've sat in meetings recently with uh, with my clients, and as we were talking. S- The children didn't – it was a family meeting. The children didn't feel like their parents were listening. And the parents basically were like, oh, please, of course we're listening. And yet the kids sat there and they were eloquent children that were teaching – that were literally voicing in a way that I hadn't heard kids ever voice. They were sharing their feelings, their voices, and they were being very, very real and very upfront. They weren't – Hiding, they weren't fighting, they weren't flighting, they were just communicating. But the parents couldn't hear it, and the parents were so frustrated because the children were so um, not just conforming to what they want. And it was creating tension. And I, I sat there and I thought, boy, this this is this is a pretty typical 
argument issue that, you know, parents might have with their kids. Um, but the kids had also been hurt, and it's really complicated, and I can't give you too many details without giving a lot of detail. Anyway, in the end, it doesn't matter. Um, if we don't feel understood, it doesn't matter why the parents aren't understanding them. If the children don't feel understood by their parents, they're not going to change. They're not going to bend. And it doesn't matter why this this communication isn't working. Um, it doesn't matter in an organization. If an employee doesn't see the, the future of their organization, um, it doesn't matter who we can blame. A lot of times we think it's about who do we blame for that. It doesn't matter who to blame because if that employee doesn't see the future – um, then they don't see the future and you're going to pay for it. If they don't see the bigger vision of what the organization's trying to do, then they don't see it. If they don't have – if they don't see that their boss is engaged and, and really helping them fulfill their mission, it's not going to happen. So we have to almost go the extra mile on this process. If you are a boss or if you're an employee, we have to make sure you're looking into your organization. What can you do to push your boss to be a better boss? What can you do to make sure you understand your future in the organization? And what can you do to actually connect into the bigger vision? So you have to be proactive as an employee and bosses need to be proactive as bosses to make sure that those needs are being met for their people because if they're not, it doesn't matter why it didn't happen. You're losing leverage. You're losing ground with the people that matter most. So it's just, it's basic business, right? It's business 101 and it's human relationships 101. Um, It's not enough to just keep losing talent. You can keep losing talent in your organization and and chalk it up to whatever. But if you don't fix it, the actual talent problem, then it's just not going anywhere and it'll spiral. In, to one degree or another. It also, by the way, remember, it doesn't mean you can't get by because average talent many times is fine. That's why the enemy of the best is the good. Sometimes sometimes your organization might want to be real that we can't afford, we can't have the top talent. So let's just get really good with average talent or let's get really good with what we've got or what we can get. It doesn't have to be top 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 talent. And again, top talent's highly subjective, right? Anyway, we're all trying to work on it one way or another, but take more control of your own approach. Don't just sit back and hope that your boss and your company hand this all to you. Make sure you're proactively leading your life toward it. Good stuff. We'll take a break, folks. Continue the journey. This is the Matt Townsend Show, uh, doing what we can to, to help you retain, keep, find, be the best talent in the world. Hey, folks, welcome back to the show. Uh, You know, we've been talking about getting past self-pity, and we've been revisiting an interview I did a few months ago with Amy Morin, who's a licensed clinical social worker, a psychotherapist, and a a college psychology instructor. She also wrote an article um, that uh, where she said mental mentally strong people reserve their resources for productive activities instead of self-pity. We don't need to have the pity party, she's teaching us. I asked her in the interview uh, what she meant by that. 
Uh, you know, I've never met anybody who says I sat on the couch for four days and didn't get dressed and didn't shower, but then I felt much better by day five. I don't know what <laughs> it know, was, but I had really, <laughs> yeah, right. I, I ate cereal for six like weeks. And so to figure out, okay, what's the best use of my time and my energy? You only have so much time and you only have so much energy. And the, the more time that you spend wallowing is the less time that you have to try to improve your situation. And so rather than staying stuck focused on the problem to be able to say, well, what, do I, what can I do that's productive? How do I look towards a solution to try to make things a little bit better? That's great. I mean, really, if you've got, you know, certain only a certain amount of energy and resources anyway, spend them wisely. Don't just exactly. don't just double down on the pity party. You also talk about practicing gratitude. How do, how do you yeah. do that? I mean, I, I always hear that and that's a great idea. Get a gratitude journal. That's great. But I, it's hard to do, you know, when you're downing donuts and you're and you're watching your 14th season of a your favorite Netflix binge. Right, and so you know, sometimes you have to be um, very purposeful in your attempt to look for what what do I have to be grateful today. And it doesn't have to be big things. It can be, you know, I saw the sunshine today, or gee, I can turn on my faucet and I have clean water that comes out of it. That's yeah. pretty amazing or clean air to breathe, whatever it might be, but to be able to just say, okay, what's three things today I can be grateful for? And it might just be things that you normally take for granted, or maybe it's a kind word somebody said to you, whatever it might be, but just to acknowledge those things. And while some people say, yeah, I keep a gratitude journal, journaling's not for everybody. Some people have a bulletin board, or they put it, write it down and put it in a jar. Other people just make a mental note of it, or they talk about it to somebody else. Whatever it might be, just to make that a habit in your life, because... Gratitude is really the antidote for self-pity. You can't feel both self-pity and gratitude at the same time. No, I love that. And it gives you something to do again. I mean, if you're focusing your eyes and your mind on uh, on the good stuff of life, it's hard to – I mean, sometimes that's just why a baby or, um, you know, your favorite television show could kind of get you out of a funk just because it makes your mind go somewhere healthier. Right, and sometimes that's it. You just need to – have that distraction, something to take you off dwelling and ruminating on how horrible your life is. That's it, too, I guess, is one of the keys uh, you talk about is you, you almost have to get out of yourself and serve other people. Otherwise, the pity might keep you in the party. Uh, you, you suggest we help or serve others. Yeah, I'm yet to meet anybody who goes and serves a meal at a soup kitchen and then says, boy, you know, I feel really sorry for myself. Yeah. If you had the wherewithal to get yourself there and you can and you can serve others, it usually helps you switch your focus to know, okay, I have something to contribute to the rest of the world. Even though my circumstances are bad, it doesn't mean I'm useless or worthless. I can still give to other people. And then just having that reason to get up and get out of bed every day can, can make a huge difference. Yeah, just the service. I guess it's... Um... It's such a natural fix, isn't it? If it's kind of, I either need to point my arrows in or my arrows out, and arrows in seems like eventually it's going to be pretty self-destructive. Um, I need to go yeah. out and, and help others, like Cupid kind of does. You also suggest that healthier people refuse to complain about it. Uh, what do you mean by that? And why does it matter if I do complain about it? You know, a lot of people seem to have this notion that venting is really helpful. So if I call everybody I know and tell them how bad my life is, I'll feel better. But when you take a step back and you think about it, like, why would you feel better? The more you talk about something, the more you're thinking about it, and the more it gets your, all your feelings get fueled by talking about it. 
And it's usually not helpful. If you go to somebody for genuine advice, a trusted friend, that's one thing. But when you're just complaining and you want people to know how bad your life is, it's not helpful for a few reasons. You know, first of all, self-pity is not a particularly attractive characteristic. Most people don't choose their friends based on who feels sorry for themselves. And also, you know, there's not a contest. Sometimes people seem to think, if I can tell you how horrible my life is, it's like there's a prize. Yeah. Really, there isn't any. You don't win anything for having the worst stuff to deal with. Yeah. If you win a pity party, I mean, and then I guess you're just the bigger loser. Great. Okay. <laughs> right. Yeah. There's nothing good that comes out of winning it. So. <laughs> it's true. It's And there's something, too, about saying it that makes it seem more real. Right. So the minute I'm arguing for all of my messed up traits, they just become more real. Right. Mm. Man, we're pathetic. <laughs> Aren't we, Amy? We just keep we just do it kind of naturally, I guess, because maybe there's a little catharsis that we benefit from by doing it. But in the end, we kind of solidify bigger problems for ourselves. Right. And, you know, there's benefit in being heard. I'll have a lot of people that come into my therapy office and they say, yeah, I want to change my life. But by about week four, it becomes clear they just want to come in every week and tell me all the bad things that happened yeah. to them in the past seven days. While it can be helpful to know that somebody's genuinely listening to you, on the other hand, if you're not going to then do anything about it, yeah. talking about it alone isn't isn't going to solve your problems or change your life. It's funny, but it's good for business, isn't it, Amy? It just yes. they just keep coming, <laughs> right? It's and it's sad because you want to help them and you know turn their feelings into action. The last thing um, that you just suggest is we maintain a, an optimistic outlook. And we go actively go build our mental strength. We've got about a minute left. Talk to us just about the about that. Why why is the mental side of this so important to us? You know, because again, if you have a pessimistic outlook on everything, it really influences how you behave. You won't go out and, and make your life into the sort of life that you want to live. If you you'll be self defeated before you even walk out the door. So if you want to be stronger, you have to do two things. The first one is you have to develop healthy habits. But then the other thing is you also have to give up those bad habits like self-pity that drag you down and hold you back. Absolutely. And that, again, was uh, Amy Morin, who is a psychologist, a licensed clinical social worker, psychotherapist, uh, teaching us about the importance of watching out for the pity party. It's too easy in our lives to just fall into that void where you uh, everything's bad, everything's sad, your life is horrible, and you're a victim of everything. Again, it doesn't mean there aren't real victims, and it doesn't mean there aren't real times where you should be down. The problem is being down and acting down and thinking down just keeps you down. And at some point, we as humans need to, to probably reach a little deeper and, and find another way out. Eckhart Tolle has a great quote that says, Discontent, blaming, complaining, self and self-pity cannot serve as a foundation for a good future. No matter how much effort you make, you're not going to whine, blame, complain, or self-pity yourself out of a out of a problem. It's just it's not the way out. It's actually the way in deeper. If you remember, we've talked on the show about so many other things like rumination. That's kind of the the negative thinking that we do when we've been hurt or harmed. It just drives us into more. Um, uh, negative thought. Remember, thought leads to feelings. Feelings leads to behavior and action, and action leads to what you're becoming. So if you keep fostering it in self-pity or in complaining or in blaming others, 
to me, you're just in a mind trap, and that mind trap will eventually lead you to more negative life, more negative behavior, more negative everything. Just, you know, my take on it. Who knows? But uh, doing what we can to end the pity parties of the world. We will continue the journey, folks. Remember, the goal is to help you live longer, love stronger, and lead healthier, happier lives. This is The Matt Townsend Show. 